0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Key primaries indicate Donald Trump continues his hold over the Republican Party as redistricting is fueling Democratic infighting as a November electoral bloodbath looms. The president's COVID relief bill, as well as Ukraine aid, are stalled, and a domestic terrorism bill, baby formula supplemental, gas price legislation, and a USICA conference, as well as Build Back Better, are all on the agenda in a lingering fashion. Before starting his Asia tour, President Biden hosted the Finnish and Swedish Prime Ministers Sauli Niinisto of Finland and Magdalena Andersson of Sweden at the White House. As Turkey made clear, it won't vote to admit the two Scandinavian nations into NATO unless its demands are met. Turkey and Hungary's obstructionism raised questions about how both the alliance and the EU should deal with two obstructionists in their ranks. Biden's priorities on his trip to Asia and the region's expectations of the American president loom large. Some analysts fear that the administration is easing pressure on China to keep Beijing from helping Russia uh, that is uh, continuing its war against Ukraine. The new Philippine president, Bongbong Marcos, may actually be even more committed than his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, to warming relations with Beijing. And as America and its allies continue to grapple with Russia's war on Ukraine and growing tensions with Beijing, President Biden authorized hundreds more troops uh, to combat terrorism in Somalia, and there continues to be a public civil war within the Marine Corps about its future. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms. Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American uh, Security, fresh back from his stint as a professor at the prestigious Sciences Po uh, in Paris, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dove Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and check out our Calviss Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor Chris Cavas and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and also tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. Obviously, a very, very busy week. We have a lot to dig through. Michael, uh, welcome back, uh, and uh, a very, very full uh, agenda on the Hill. There's a lot going on uh, not many legislative days uh, left before everybody is going to actually part for what is going to be a b- bloodbath of an election season, at least for Democrats, uh, is the expectation. Uh, you know, walk us
1: through the legislation, where we are and how this all affects uh, defense. You're correct. There was a lot going on in this week. And so I'll start with what actually you know did get done. Uh, you know, as you know, the House had passed the uh, Ukraine emergency uh, supplemental last week uh, package of about 40 billion dollars. But the Senate was unable to pass it last week as Senator Paul held it up, arguing that the package was raising questions of constitutionality uh, and affordability. And he was demanding that the Senate amend the bill uh, to designate a special federal watchdog to oversee how the money was spent. And the Senate would not go along with that, which delayed passage. However, the Senate did pass uh, the bill yesterday, uh, 86 to 11. The concerning thing about the 11 voted against, they were all Republicans. And um, there were members of Armed Services Appropriations and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, in that 11 who did vote against. And it's starting this slow trickle, which we'll talk about later, of Republican concern about about spending. Uh, Now, USICA continues to move forward. There's been some positive um, moves on that front. Uh, The goal is to have all the open legislative items uh, completed and closed out by the end of this month uh, and a finished conference uh, by June 21st. So, if hopefully they can keep that pace, I think it's pretty ambitious. But hopefully they can get there. And then uh, COVID aid uh, continues to plague both the House and the Senate. Uh, The Senate rejected a bill yesterday about forty-eight billion dollars to provide additional aid to restaurants, gyms, and other small businesses. Uh, And Pelosi now is has um, wants to help Biden, you know, with his COVID aid package as far as you know medicines, therapeutics, which was dwindled from twenty-two billion down to ten billion now. Uh, the speaker wants to do $22.5 billion again. However, there really is no must-pass vehicle to attach it to. I don't see that bill uh, actually going anywhere before the elections because there's no way that bill gets out of the Senate unless they amend it to include uh, stopping implementation of uh, Title 42. um, And there's no way uh, with that in it that it would pass the House. The progressives have come up very strong uh, saying that they will vote against it, and so has the uh, Congressional Hispanic Caucus. So, and lastly, you know, you mentioned build back better and reconciliation. Um, you know, that still amazes me that they continue to have these conversations. Schumer uh, met again with Manchin this month, but you know, that, that bill seems to be focused on, um, you know, dealing with inflation. And I don't see how they would get everybody on board with something that um, would appease not just mansion but cinema as well as the progressives. And as long as that continues to hang out there, that does affect the ability to uh, end up with, with a budget agreement as to what we're going to spend the next year. Now, you mentioned too uh, a possible electoral bloodbath heading uh, the Democrats' way in November, and it's it's really true. I mean, the most recent polling, you know, despite the fact that there was all this temporary uproar over Roe versus Wade, you know, it shows that. Um, you know, the um, in the battleground districts, which doesn't really matter, the generic Republican is beating a generic Democrat, 47 to 39. And that's really significant because Democrats generally have a three or four point built in advantage in the generic ballot. So an eight point deficit like that really indicates a wave for Republicans. And as a result, you know, the Democrats were scrambling this week to pass a series of, of messaging bills. I mean, the first one dealing with gas prices, the House passed what they're calling the oil price gouging bill. Um, Every Republican voted against it. Uh, Then the uh, Democrats also passed the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act uh, in response to the Buffalo shootings. Uh, That bill, every Republican voted against, except for Adam Kinzinger. Uh, The Republicans were opposed to it, saying that efforts to crack down on domestic terrorists could be misused to uh, initiate investigations into conservatives who practice free speech. Uh, And the House Republicans argue that it gives the the DOJ uh, too much power. And lastly, we've seen a lot of talk about a baby formula and the baby formula crisis. So the House did pass a $28 million emergency funding bill. Um, Now, again, the Republicans opposed that as well, uh, saying it offered a blank check to the FDA without securing immediate boost in formula supply. But I think what's significant there is that the president invoked the Defense Production Act to help address uh, the baby formula shortage. Um, And he also authorized the use of military uh, commercial aircraft to transport uh, overseas infant formula into the United States if we can find some overseas. So, uh, you know, I, but I. And, I think, and we have,
0: and we found uh, some, I think, in Switzerland. Uh, the search is on the Abbott factory that was at the heart of this crisis three months ago is getting ready to reopen uh, and is going to start uh, production as well, right? I mean, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not minimizing it as somebody. Um, who had kids know how important this is, I'm not minimizing it, but it is a difficult challenge and shows what happens when you have a highly, consi- You know, it was optimally designed, but the system doesn't have a lot of elasticity in it when something does go wrong is what it illustrates. A little bit like we've seen on personal protective equipment or, or now we're finding uh, with Javelin missiles as well, right? We have too many problems. And when something goes wrong, we actually can't surge production of things because we don't have that extra capacity.
1: Exactly. And and all these measures, even if they did become law, would take a long time until it really addressed uh, the problem in, in the near term. Um, but to get back to your earlier point, um, you know, what does this really mean for defense spending? And I think that um, right now, I mean, every Democrat I talk to um, will you know admit that the, the House is going to flip to the Republicans. This is a question of how, how much. I mean, I, I think I mentioned before I had dinner with a very senior Democrat on the Armed Services Committee who asked me how many seats I thought would flip. I said about thirty. Uh, the Democrat told me I was wrong; it'd be much more than that. <laughs> so, um, well, so and what? So what does that mean
0: for defense committees, right? I mean, the way that these districts have been drawn, right? I mean, you and I were going back and forth last night. Six districts in uh, New York, for example, where Democrats are going to duke it out with with one another. Uh, right. Talk to us a little bit about what this means for the complexion of the defense committees uh, and, and leadership more broadly and, and where the House and Senate both end up going on defense matters.
1: Well, I mean, what it means for the complexion of the defense committees really depends on what the ratios are, because right now uh, they're pretty even. I mean, if the Democrats really have one more seat than the Republicans in armed services. That probably will change. Uh, where the Republicans will have you know, maybe three or four uh, more seats. And we'll see lots of new members on the Republican side as well, because I anticipate some of the Republicans jumping off armed services to get on appropriations or, and some other committees. Uh, and then on, on the Democratic side, we do have three major retirements of subcommittee chairmen, uh, but uh, many of the Democrats on that committee are vulnerable in re-election. So we really could see a, a sea change on that committee is, is really possible. It'd be a shame because there are a lot of really great, very thoughtful uh, Democratic members in that committee. But, you know, I think that you know, a lot of people think that because the Republicans were likely to take over Congress, that, that means defense spending is going to go up. And I'm not so sure that's the case. Uh, and, and the philosophy in the House and the Senate are very different. I mean, the House has a lot of rabble-rousers and they have a Freedom Caucus to deal with. And already I'm starting to hear a, a lot of back-channel conversations as to how can we actually cut defense spending in the next uh, administer, in next Congress, right? Because as we've talked about on previous podcasts, um, you know, the first thing the new Congress is going to have to do when they get back is raise the debt ceiling, and I think a lot of the ultra conservatives are going to want to extract something in exchange for that. And you know, as you right. remember, we had the Budget Control Act back in 2011 uh, when the, the new class came in, you know, the Tea Party class demanding. Uh, these kind of cuts uh, in order to raise the debt ceiling. So what will their demands be? But there are already putting being put out as to where can we find cuts in defense, not increases. And that right. is raising alarm bells among defense industry and among pro-defense Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh,
0: I think it's uh, is certainly going to be very, very uh, uh, interesting uh, outlook uh, as we go forward. And and especially whether or not this is going to drive people um, to move away um willfully willfully start moving away from the ukraine crisis and say hey look we've got to be focused on china uh because i think that there is a lot of momentum to be focused on that high intensity problem uh, as opposed to uh the the ukraine war which i hope is not the case and i hope you know, I want to believe that the 40 billion and other commitments by European nations are going to be upheld. Um, but Jim, uh, welcome back on the program. It's great to have you back on. Uh, Finland, Sweden have asked to become NATO members. Uh, their leaders visited the White House. The president wanted to underscore uh, their importance. important. We have a $40 billion measure, right? So that puts USAID, I think, uh, at $54 billion to Ukraine, which is a significant sum. And it is helping um, uh, uh, falter the um, uh, Russian operations uh, against Ukraine for, for the time being. Uh, a broader call-up uh, is what Putin is is looking for, um, You know, including raising the age of people who can serve. W- where are we right now? And what is your concern? Uh, and Dov, uh, you're in Warsaw now, and I want to get your sense on this uh, as well, right? I want to talk about Turkey in a second. And Dov, you wrote a great piece that ran in The Hill today uh, on that. So I, I uh, suggest that the audience check that out. But Jim, start us off. Like, Where where are we? Is support for this war still firm? And how does the administration deal with some of its internal dynamics and tensions, which you saw when you served in the Obama administration as the Europe Chief for eight years, about being a lot less interested in Europe and a lot more interested in Asia?
2: Right. Well, uh, it's great to be back, first of all, Um, and uh, great to be back on the on the podcast. Well, so what, what concerns me are a couple of things. One is uh, this war could drag on and on and on. It's I, I know we've had some recent, uh, certainly some big setbacks uh, for the Russians. Uh, they they make a little bit of progress. They get pushed back. And make a little bit of progress. Um, how long Ukraine and the Ukraine uh, army can can hang in there uh, despite the equipment coming in, but uh, but but to avoid being just physically. Uh, Uh, just uh, tired out from from all the fighting and all that's going on. This is this is going to be a long war. It's one of attrition. And when you're outnumbered the way the Ukraine is a war of attrition doesn't uh, doesn't go your way. So I say that because we're not looking at something that's going to be over real quick uh, so that those in the Pentagon who are banking on being able to put aside Europe and Russia and park it while they deal with Asia, that's not going to happen. Uh, and, um, and so we're going to have to be able to do uh, both what, what, what we need to do in Europe on the one hand, um, as well as China. And I don't want to diminish China. I think I, I agree with China as the pacing threat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I get that. And I also get that we don't want a tremendous um, Cold War-like defense budget uh, when we've got other requirements as well. But we've got to figure out a way to do both. We can't bet on the come here and think that we're going to have a short term problem or a medium term problem uh, in Europe uh, and that we can just kind of forget about it. We, we can't. And I and I say that because I do know there's some in the Pentagon who uh, their hearts not in this Europe stuff. Uh, either they're China hands or they're not Europe hands. Uh, and so every every dollar that goes into Europe, they are gritting their teeth and hating it. Uh, and right. I think what we need to do is figure a way to balance this out so we can do what it's going to take for the long term in Europe to deter this Russia that is going to be with us in this aggressive mode uh, with Putin and probably without him. Uh, we've got to stay in there for the long term. And on the, on Asia, we've got to do what we've got to do there as well. And that's a big challenge. But we've got to balance it out. And we need the folks in the Pentagon to get on board with that.
0: Um, and uh, I want to end. And I believe. Right. If if we could get the other hundred billion dollars that we want over a sustained period of time, then I think that that's a tide that addresses both of these concerns. Right. I mean, the administration picked the strategy it did to try to, hey, look, if you're telling me um, capacity or capability, I'm going to go for capability, even if it means less capacity. Right. Fewer uh, soldiers. I don't want to get Michael started on why the army's got to get bigger. I mean, basically, everybody's gotten a little bit smaller. you know, Dove, you're in uh, Poland. You've had a great opportunity to talk to folks. You're doing your sweep through Europe uh, uh, a bit. Uh, and I think you're going to end up in uh, Scandinavia. You know, give us your sense on what you're picking up um, and what polls are telling you about where we are right now, what we're getting right, what we're not getting right, what we need to be doing better. And then Patrick, and I want to talk about the Turkey issue in a minute as well. But Patrick, want to bring you in in a moment to sort of get your sense on this for lack of a better word, and not to sound funny, the yin yang balance, and whether because there's a sense that some of the the China hawks in the administration totally have a little bit of a blind spot when it comes uh, to Russia, and I want to get your take on 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 that. Um, Dove, give us give us your sense from sort of the the front lines, if you will, of this uh, of this conflict.
3: Sure, um, the polls themselves uh, are pushing as hard as they ever have uh, to get permanent basing. Um, and their argument uh, is, uh, you've got, they've got Kaliningrad on one side, they have Ukraine. Um, they've got Belarus whose army is completely integrated. It's essentially a Russian army, uh, leaving the politics aside, it is a Russian army. And so they say, whichever way we look, in fact, the chief of staff, uh, just spoke today. And, uh, He said, look, this is not the eastern flank. This is the eastern front. I mean, we're facing these guys. Uh, And so there's that push. Then there's uh, some degree of enthusiasm for victory on the part of Ukraine. And, you know, there's a big issue as to what victory means, because I think Jim is absolutely right. The Russian way of war is uh, historically, you don't do very well in the beginning, and then you start throwing tons of manpower into the fight. You replace your generals with better generals. That's what happened in World War II. That's what happened in the, in the Winter War of 1939. And you just continue to fight till the other side collapses. Uh, and so Jim's observation is right on target there. Uh, and there is a concern about that. What exactly can Zelensky give up uh and uh on the other hand what exactly is putin prepared to give up and right now the answer is no on either side which means this thing's going to go on and that brings me to the point that uh, michael raised about spending because clearly if you have the republicans or a chunk of them wanting to cut back on defense and you have as uh Uh, Jim said people in the Pentagon who would rather not look at Europe very much at all if they could get away with it, then you're not going to see the level of spending that's needed for us to face in both directions at once, east and west. Nobody wants to do that in this administration because they know that's going to mean a lot more money for defense. It's going to make it a lot more sensible to have a bigger army, as Michael talks about. The Army's long-range fires are going to be a lot more comprehensible in Europe than in Asia. Um, There'll be a a new role for the Marine Corps, by the way, uh, not just uh, for the uh, 1st Marine uh, Expeditionary uh, Division, MEF, actually, the 1st MEF uh, in Asia, or rather the 3rd MEF, which is General Berger's idea of uh, a different kind of posture, But the first and second MEP will be looking at Europe because now Scandinavia, Finland, Sweden will be part of NATO and the Baltic Sea will be a a NATO sea. And the Marines will be in a position to do things to uh, keep Kaliningrad in particular under control. Uh, So there are missions in Europe that uh, I think we kind of forgot about over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and that will come that are coming back with a vengeance that will cost more money. And what worries me is that it may cost more money, but both the administration for one set of reasons and the those Republicans who want to cut money for a second set of reasons are going to agree uh, a weird agreement. But they those fellows, will agree that we don't want to spend more money. And that is really troublesome.
0: Indeed, it is. And uh, I want to get uh, to uh, the Marine uh, Civil War. You were very thoughtful at uh, CISIS. Great uh, discussion that Mark Kansian hosted. Uh, Bob Work. Uh, arguing uh, for uh, the Marine Corps strategy that uh, General Berger is driving and Generals uh, Zinni and Van Riper arguing against uh, the, the changes, not necessarily against innovation. And I thought, Dove, uh, you, you struck an excellent balance uh, w- with that and made some tremendous points. And, and just for our audience, former uh, De- uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work and retired United States Marine Corps colonel uh, will be on the Canvas Ships podcast discussing, indeed, uh, his, uh, his argument why General Berger, uh, the Commandant, is on the right track. Um, I think everybody recognizes he's on the right track. The question is whether or not he's going about it in the right way to make sure that his um, drive for innovation doesn't end where it is now. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But Patrick, let me bring you in uh, to uh, the discussion. Um, you know, we, you and I have been talking about this issue uh, on, on this uh, podcast as well as, as privately about this yin and yang and this sense of a binary choice. And we saw that reflected in what General Berger uh, was advocating a couple of years ago, which is, hey, get out of Europe, get out of Norway. We don't need to be doing all of this. It's all about the Pacific. It's all about China. Uh, Bridge Colby uh, was one of those people where during the strategy, anything else, I mean, it was an immediate get out of Syria, get out of Afghanistan, get out of everywhere else. This is all about China. And yet there are some that actually reflect that uh, mindset, even at very, very senior levels uh, where they're somewhat not as interested. From your standpoint, you talk to administration leaders, both on the China side, but broadly on the security side, How are they trying to navigate this yin and yang? Because I think Vladimir Putin is smart enough to recognize these guys are more interested in Asia than they are in me. And again, as Jim said, everything about Russia is about patience, and they really don't care how much damage ultimately they take. They're going to pound Grozny to sand. You know, oh my God, you'll lose people in Syria. Doesn't seem to bother them. Uh, You'll lose a lot of people if you attack Ukraine. They did. You know, there were some demonstrations of mom's. Um, you know, and, and Nemtsov was killed. So that was the end of that, right? How, what's this with yin and yang in the administration? And is this going to work in Russia's favor ultimately?
4: Well, Russia's use of force has strengthened the transatlantic alliance in a big way. And it's forced the Biden administration to be present in both theaters, both sides of Eurasia, uh, deterring and building. Uh, and I think that's what the president's trying to do as he heads. He's in Korea right now. He'll be in Japan as well. Um, it's a deterrence in Asia while he's deterring and holding his own uh, with allies uh, in Russia's war on Ukraine. Um, and I believe that um, you know this is just part of the reality that the administration understands. So people like Jake Sullivan and Kirk Campbell, not to mention the president, fully understand that they have to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. They have to maintain a balance of power both across the Atlantic as well as in the Pacific and Indian Oceans, and that they can't ignore Russia. Um, so while some of the China hawks, as you mentioned, may want to focus on China, understandably, and not just Russia, um, you know the, the reality is that the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, uh, the President of the United States all understand they're dealing with both uh, revisionist major powers, and Russia is the ones that's using force at the moment. So they have uh, had no choice but to deal with them, and they're dealing with it quite well. I, I really think the president's trip to Asia has been set up quite well, because we've seen two and a half months of stymieing Russia's aggression. Uh, we, The president just had a very successful of quiet uh, summit, first ever, with ASEAN leaders in the White House. Uh, he now is in Korea. He's just visited a Samsung electronics plant in Pyeongtaek. It kind of highlights his economic agenda that he'll be uh, further uh, showcasing in Japan when he launches the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. He meets with Quad leaders there, meets with Prime Minister Kishida. He's got in President Yoon in South Korea, a a tremendous new ally and opportunity to to show deterrence. And that's important. Why? Because Kim Jong-un, even in ravaged, COVID ravaged North Korea, is about to launch an, an ICBM test. Um, his nuclear test that it'll be coming in the future weeks because of all the tunnel activity. It's obvious he will do this. Um, He's not there yet on the nuclear test, but he will have an ICBM test this weekend while the president's uh, in the region. So the United States is deterring war uh, in, you know, Asia it's uh, holding deterrence and peace in Europe. um, And it's going to be building still this economic agenda together. So we're going to have to do all of these things at the same time. The administration gets that, um, and yes, there's going to be a lot more from China in the, in the future days because of this Asia trip and the focus, in, but China's in a slump, and that's, that's an advantage too. Putin's in a slump. Xi Jinping's in a slump
0: as well. I'm going to get to the China trip in a second, but we have to really briefly talk about Turkey. Uh, Jim, uh, start us off. I mean, this is a negotiation uh, you negotiated often uh, with our Turkish uh, allies. Uh, and Dov, you wrote a, a great piece that, again, appeared in the, in the Hill. Uh, Jim, start us off. I mean, what's the key? Because on the surface of it, you can understand the Turkish demand. Um, you Scandinavian nations are harboring Kurdish terrorists. Um, there are Western democracies, um, I don't think they would look at it that way. They would say that these are dissidents, uh, for example, that they are uh, har- harboring. Uh, and, th- you know, they have their own laws. They're unlikely to hand over, um, uh, you know, Gulenist, um, uh, you know, reactionaries, even though there are those who believe that it was actually Recep type Erdogan that sort of precipitated a coup to keep himself in power. Uh, Right. Um, How how do we how do we work this out so that uh, Finland and Sweden are both in uh, the NATO alliance uh, and and we deal with this sort of growing and even more vociferous obstructionist tendency that we're seeing with Turkey uh, as it's trying to, you know, I mean, from its standpoint, legitimately balance its interests because, um, you know, autocrats have a tendency of gravitating toward each other. and, And these two have gravitated toward each other. And by the way, Orban has as well. I mean, you know, if Turkey wasn't doing this, Hungary would be doing this. But because Turkey is doing it, Hungary doesn't have to do it.
2: Well, uh, that's an interesting observation. I-, I will say I love the Turks. And the thing is about the Turks is um, this is how they are. And if you work with Turkey uh, and you love Turks and you travel in Turkey, you shouldn't be surprised at this. Uh, it's this type of thing of using your leverage and trying to get something uh, out of, out of agreeing to go in a certain direction that everybody else wants to go. And the Turks do this all the time, uh, but a lot of the time they do it behind the scenes in committees or whatever at NATO. If you work at NATO, you know how to work this kind of problem with the Turks. Um, what's interesting to me is that now this is quite public, uh, and so everyone is stunned to watch the Turks, and, uh, and it's like, well, you know, that's just the way they are. And what will happen here is what happened with uh, Rasmussen, if you remember, when he was uh, put up by the Danish government to be NATO section, the Turks blocked him. This was a few years ago uh, and because uh, Erdogan was angry that the, the Danes had done the Mohammed cartoon and all this kind of thing. And so they had to work behind the door behind closed doors on a deal to give Turkey something in order to get to buy Turkey's vote. And that's going to happen here, too. You've, you saw it yesterday. Where both the Swedes and Finns talked about, um, you know, Turk- legitimate Turkish uh, security interests and being, you know, anti-terror. You know, they were so they are beginning to say the right things uh, in terms of being against the PKK, uh, and th- which is what Erdogan wants to try to get them to do. They're going to have to do it though to square with what their policies are in Helsinki and in Stockholm, they're not, they can't appear to just knuckle under to the Turks, but they've got to work out something. And then they're working on that. Now uh, work out something where um, Erdogan gets his pound of flesh and he will then agree to vote in um, those two countries. It's like the Congress. Okay. It's like mansion or whatever. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, And, and, and I am certain that once Erdogan feels he's gotten everything he can get uh, he's going to he'll he'll lift his he'll lift his hold. That's just that's just the way it is. Turkey is too important in terms of geography, frankly, and, and also there's other good things about Turkey, too, but but we need them in the alliance. It's just frustrating at times dealing with this. Uh, but you got to just be patient and, and, and buy the carpet at the right price. And that's that's the how they do things.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it it, uh, in, it indeed, right? I mean, if you can get something, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's up to every nation to get it. The question is whether or not they're actually somewhat more obstructionist than your average uh, NATO uh, member, and that's in part because of their size and their military capability, and they feel like they can g- get away with it. Um, well, I. Uh, but, uh, well, go ahead. I just
2: just to just to add to that, Vago. I, I mean, they are they are more like this than the other. Uh, allies, because because Turkey is a is a whole different culture than you have uh, throughout Europe. There are, I will tell you, there the French do this too. So it's not like it's just Turkey, and I'm sure right. the United States has not been absent in this kind of tactic as well. Uh, really, but, but no, that's, that's yeah, a shock. That I'm strong. shocked, shocked. But the the thing is this, though, you know, Turkey has always felt that the alliance doesn't pay attention to its its security issues, which are more terrorism related than anything else uh, and and the turks have held a grudge and they feel that nato every now and then needs to show their love for turkey uh, and 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 the turks will go off and do something and, and 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 so you see this kind of relationship where turkey has these grievances whether it's uh, including the eu you know that that they're being slow rolled to the eu as if they care anymore but but there are these grievances uh, that have been nurtured for years by turkey and every now and then these things flare up Uh, At a time when when the Turks have leverage over something that everybody else wants in NATO, and the Turks will raise their hand and and we're back in the bazaar. And that's just the way they are. They do it more than the other allies, But, but I will tell you, other allies do it too. They just do it differently.
0: It, you know, but I mean, right. I mean, as you said, I mean, there's a cultural challenge which then creates an EU issue. Uh, obviously, it's a large Muslim nation and other EU nations are not. Uh, and uh, indeed, the way that it's treated its minorities, uh, the Kurdish minority, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like Kurds are doing what they're doing for no good reason. Uh, there is reason uh, and, and rationale. Dov, I want to uh, bring you into the conversation, thoughtful piece. Uh, and, and sort of building on what, uh, you know, Jim said as well about, you know, how we how we get to a better place. But I'm also interested in sort of more broadly, how do you deal, you know, in an alliance that, you know, two key or, or two important members. Right. I mean, every member is important two large countries in the in, in the alliance are, are actually working to obstruct um, alliance strategy in a way maybe that we haven't seen in a long time.
3: Well, uh, to begin with, there's one additional factor, and I, I know the Turks pretty well. I, I was involved in setting up our high-level defense group with them in 1981. That's an awful long time ago, uh, and been dealing off and on with the Turks ever since. And, and yeah, I think Jim's right about Turkey in general, but you also have to focus on Erdogan and specifically. He's up for election next year um for the he's not looking as a slam dunk winner at all and i suspect that's why he's gone public and not done what uh jim norm described as what turkey normally does which is do this kind of stuff in committee and behind closed doors so he's gone public and that makes it a little bit harder for him to back off um it was suggested to me that um you know the united states basically push the Abraham Accords by buying off Morocco, by buying off the UAE. Uh, it, maybe the answer is give him the F-35s. Um that maybe, well certainly if he gets those, he can claim that look what I've done for Turkey. The other possibility, of course, and this ties in with uh you know what we were talking about earlier in terms of the war in Ukraine. If the Russians not only keep Mariupol but are essentially Uh, spreading themselves over the Northern Black Sea, Um, that is a huge, huge problem for Turkey. And Turkey may well say, okay, we're going to let the Swedes and Finns in, but you better focus far more heavily on the Black Sea and the southern flank. And, you know, the Turks are actually being helpful in a couple of ways. Everybody knows about their drones picking off all sorts of Russians and, and their equipment, because the drones are just that good. And this is the fourth time they're doing it. They did it in Libya, they did it in Syria, they did it in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Azerbaijan, Armenia. But the other thing they're doing, which hasn't gotten that much publicity, is they're keeping the Russian warships out of the Black Sea. They're not letting in, them into the Bosporus or the Dardanelles, the Straits. And that makes a huge difference for Ukraine. Uh, and so, you know, the Turks are not exactly on Russia's side here. And if they uh, perceive, and Erdogan perceives, that he's got a threat from Russia, he, like I say, might turn around and say, okay, fine, but you guys better help me out in the South. Uh, So I think that has to be uh, a consideration here. Um, And more generally, uh, Hungary, I think, is less of a problem. Certainly the Swedes I speak to at very high levels are not uptight about Hungary at all. They actually have a decent relationship with Orban, believe it or not. Um, the, there's a larger problem, whether it's in the EU or NATO, which is what do you do about these guys? And quite frankly, just as uh, Putin has uh, you know, expanded NATO in effect, uh, the exact opposite of what he wanted to do, he's also united NATO and he's united the EU. And even Orban, who uh, doesn't want uh, any kind of oil embargo, He's still gone along with these sanctions uh, because, at the end of the day, the Hungarians also remember Russian tanks
0: uh, inside Budapest. And and Turkey obviously has a lot of very legitimate concerns. And indeed, the invocation of the Montreux Convention uh, is is very very important in this uh, in this uh, crisis. I mean, the question is whether or not resupply ships uh, are going to be able to make it through. Uh, and I'm not sure whether they've turned those away, right? I mean, are resupply because the question is whether they're combatant vessels. The question was whether or not Turkey was going to stop uh, Turkish uh, Russian cargo ships uh, from crossing uh, Montreux because there is a large convoy of Russian ships, I think, coming from the Pacific uh, with uh, re- resupply. Dove any any sense whether those have gone through? Do we have an update on that? Actually,
3: well, all I know is that uh, this whole the whole Russian the Russians have not invoked the convention. Um, they, I mean, rather the Turks. They have not invoked the convention. They've basically told Russia unofficially, um, "We're not going to let these guys through." And so right. far, they've stuck to that. Uh, and I suspect that as long as they don't go public, um, then um, they will continue that policy. If they go public, that's a whole other issue. And then you've got the question with uh, the non-naval, non-military ships, supply ships going through or not. But right now. The Turks are holding fast, is my understanding.
0: Patrick, I want to I want to go to you and ask you uh, a question, which has sort of come up from other uh, analysts: uh, whether the administration uh, is actually has actually been go- going soft on China. Uh, right? I mean, we've been talking about how the administration is tough on China, but this perception some have that the administration has uh, not talking uh, as tough on on China as it has been, in part because it's trying to convince. Uh, Beijing to not help Moscow uh, in this war. Um, you know what's what's your sense uh, on that? Um, is it is it perception? Is it reality? Uh, obviously, there's a very important realpolitik that the administration is trying to strike right, convince China not to help uh, the Russians. We heard from uh, Ambassador Sandy Vershbow, uh this week of the Atlantic Council, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, NATO, and, NATO and South Korea. You know who mentioned that. The Chinese are actually self-censoring themselves, right? I mean, they are very careful about what they send to Russia because they don't want to run afoul of U.S. export control laws and affect the wider economic relationship. I think that was one of the messages that the president delivered to Xi Jinping uh, directly. What's what's your sense on this? Is this more of a messaging thing? Uh, is it more reality? What 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 is it? Is there a shift? Because you can tell there there is there is this perception that there isn't as much China talk, for example, over the last couple of months.
4: In preparation for the president's visit, um, hosting the Southeast Asian leaders at the White House, having taken the counsel of the Indonesian president, uh, Joko uh, Widodo, um, and having uh, listened to the Singapore prime minister six weeks earlier, the president and the White House are trying to uh, play the game in Asia. China and Asia are not focused on Ukraine. Uh, Yes, Japan has been a stalwart ally uh, and standing up on Ukraine and talking about indivisible security. But the competition is over hearts and minds in East Asia. You're going to have an Australian Labor government elected uh, most likely tomorrow, first time Labor returns to power after nine years. The Southeast Asian countries don't want to get on the wrong side of China, and China's conducting exercises in the South China Sea right now and basically putting out propaganda points that you better, you Asians better not get on the wrong side of China by signing up too closely with the Americans on their economic plan or aligning against them over quad countries or South Korea working in more integrated defense fashion. That's where the game is really being played. And so the administration is playing it smart in terms of the messaging in Asia, but I understand how that seems like it's being quiet about the China threat. Remember, um, Li Keqiang right now, the premier, is making this sort of uh, amazing comeback uh, as almost a challenge to Xi Jinping. Nobody thinks it's going to be successful, or very few people do, but it it shows that um, Xi Jinping is in a really bad spot right now. They just had to drop the uh, interest rates today in China unexpectedly because of the economy. Um, The the COVID lockdown uh, in Shanghai may be showing glimmers of coming to an end uh, next month, but at the same time, they're worried about Beijing. Um, There's tremendous pressure on uh, China right now, and they do not want to lose their influence in Asia. And yet here, Biden is doing uh, this trip with a new ally in South Korea, with with a reinvigorated Japan, wanting to lead the Quad leaders. Um, with this Indo-Pacific economic framework about to take off and show that finally, for the first time since the Americans, both parties, walked away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and multilateral trade, at least they're putting an economic multilateral idea on the table in Asia. So that's where the competition is really happening. I don't want to trivialize how important the war is uh, in the contest in, in Ukraine. We've been talking about that. I'm just trying to give you a sense of really where Asian minds are and where China is thinking about the messaging war against the United States and Asia.
0: Patrick, I want to take you to the question of uh, the Philippines. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., otherwise known as Bongbong, uh, was is is now uh, the new Philippine uh, president. Um, you know, his uh, father was the dictator who was uh, uh, boosted, uh, driven from power by the people power revolution of Corazon Aquino. Um, he is, you know, Duterte was perceived as being pro-China, or a little all over the map, uh, maybe might be another way of, 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 of uh, characterizing it. Uh, I should say Duterte's uh, daughter is uh, the new uh, vice president of the Philippines, uh, which certainly makes it interesting. Um, certainly a dynastic, uh, two dynastic lines here uh, allying. Um, is Bongbong going to be more pro-China? And what does that mean? Right, He said the American alliance remains important At the same time, has talked even more glowingly about China than probably any prime minister, any uh, Philippine leader we've heard in a while.
4: Well, Marcos is going to be pro-Marcos and Marcos' family, Uh, and so the question is, um, will he be also pro-Philippines? Will he be good for the Philippines? If he is, playing the balancing game off the big powers can work to the benefit of the Filipinos. Uh, And Marcos has learned a lot by watching Duterte's populist uh, sort of rants. Um, turn against the United States, but then in the last year of the the Duterte administration, um, really coming back and uh, solidifying the U.S.-Philippine alliance. I I see Marcos as just a continuation. We were just talking about Turkey and talking about the unique aspects of Erdogan. Uh, All of those kind of same arguments can be made about the Philippines. If you watch the Philippines, playing uh, countries off each other is not a surprise. They've been doing this a long time, What's different about Marcos is that he represents a certain uh, degree of baggage of cronyism and corruption that we were hoping the Philippines were going to be moving away from. But we saw come back with Duterte, although Duterte was fighting corruption on one hand, he was also uh, instituting it. And you see his, his daughter uh, elected separately as the vice president, keeps the Duterte sort of line, uh, political line, uh, future open maybe as the successor to, uh, to Marcos. So I think there's an opportunity in U.S.-Philippine alliance, uh, despite the fact that Marcos will not be uh, our kind of democratically elected president that we would love to work with, um, but he will be uh, doing business. And he'll be doing business with everybody, the Chinese, the United States, anybody who wants to, to deal.
0: Dove, uh, I want to uh, bring it uh, home uh, with you about uh, the Civil War in the Marine Corps. Um, it was a, a great conversation at CSIS. Um, obviously, uh, the retired general officer class who opposes the commandant is making the case that they're fighting for the, you know, but uh, Bob were co- talked it about custody of the kids, uh, and General Van Riper made it clear that it's actually about the life of the child that they're uh, debating uh, over, um, you know, making cases why tubed artillery is important, why tanks are important. You did excellent counterpoints on both of those that artillery is not really that useful in a Pacific scenario. It's very manpower intensive. uh, And indeed, tanks work for the Army, but may not work as well for the Marine Corps, which is a lighter force. Give us sort of your sense about this debate. Uh, I know that you've been in touch and you confer uh, often with the Commandant. Um, You know, where are we? What's he done right? What's he done wrong? Because the way the opponents of these changes are characterizing it as they're speaking on behalf of people across the Marine Corps. And I know that some of the Commandant's changes caught some very senior Marines off balance as well. Um, you know, you know, some of them flat out telling me like the first time we saw some of this stuff was when the guidance was published, right? Um, what's, what's your sense on where we are, where we're going and how this resolves itself? Because the Commandant has been backing up a little bit uh, in, in some of the things that he's been suggesting and saying that there'll be reconsiderations and know you know, these are experiments.
3: Where, where are we? Well, a couple of things. The first is the argument that, uh, Jim Webb, the former secretary of the Navy and, uh, Marine and great novelist, uh, made. And I think it was the Washington Post that somehow this was done by the commandant without the higher ups and DOD knowing about it. That was not a valid argument. Uh, obviously, uh, Whatever the commandant would have done required money movements, and uh, as a former comptroller, I can tell you, you got to sign off on those money movements, and you better sign off in a way that your bosses—that is to say, the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary—are going to be agreeable to it. So they clearly did sign off, and uh, he did not end run the uh, the earring of uh, the, the the OSD part of the earring. So that's number one. Just to clarify. Number two is this is huge that, you know, the the senior generals, uh, the retired senior generals uh, obviously are very, very upset. By the way, not all of them, but a good number of them. Number one, number two, they are claiming that up and down the core, uh, there's the same degree of upset at the same time. For instance, I was talking recently to uh, an O5, a lieutenant colonel. Uh, who, frankly, is young enough to be my son. Uh, and he said, no, uh, a lot of the younger officers are really glomming on to what the commandant has to say. They're they're the ones who are going to be the general officers uh, 10 years from now, and uh, they kind of like what he's saying. So, you know, the, the civil war inside the Marines may not be exactly the same civil war that is being reported in the media, because you have a generation that seems to think the commandant's on the right track. Then there's the whole issue of, well, this isn't across the board in the Marine Corps. This is, uh, this is the China approach. And you know, the, yes, the commandant has been open about the fact that he's still experimenting, he's still reevaluating and so on, but you have two other MEFs, Marine expeditionary forces that are geared to other parts of the world, the Middle East and Uh, and a a very, very important Europe again, as we've been discussing. So, uh, yes, there are some issues. Uh, I remember uh, at the panel, the the retired general said, do you really believe the army is going to turn over tanks to the Marine Corps, which is one of the things that uh, I think was part of this uh, package that the commandant put forward? Well, it also depends. If we are pre-positioning tanks in Europe and the Marines get there first, then they're going to take those army tanks out of the prepositioned facilities. So the the commandant's not even crazy on that score. I mean, people try to make him out that he is, but he's not. Uh, So this is a far more complex, sophisticated debate than I think has been uh, publicized up to now. There are real questions, logistics, uh, certainly that has to be worked out. Tactical mobility, all in, in Asia, certainly has to be worked out. Um, but you don't just discard these ideas uh, very quickly on the one hand, but you don't accept them equally quickly on the other. it's Any good idea has to be worked through and thought through before you put uh, our
0: men and women on the battlefield at risk. Ultimately, my question, uh, and I think it was uh, raised, and I think uh, you raised it as well, Dove. right? I mean, what are all these units going into all these places in such small formations that are very difficult to logistically support doing? Um, I'm all for greater agility and greater mobility, and you know, you're know you going to have to take territory. But when you're going to study the Pacific War, there are a lot of battles we ended up fighting that we didn't have to fight. We could have just circumvented them, uh, blockaded them, and they wouldn't have been able really to do all that much uh, at the at the end of the day, uh, given how weakened the Japanese empire was. Well, so-
3: absolutely. And, and those are questions that he's got to confront. Uh, he says he's confronting them. He's got to answer them. I mean, if you want this policy to be realized, uh, you have to figure out logistics. Is, you know, there's the famous saying, the professionals focus on logistics. It's absolutely true. But, you know, the commandant is a professional.
0: Uh, ex- exactly so. Uh, and indeed, I think you, you do need to think transformationally at a moment like this. And I uh, think he deserves an enormous amount of credit for, uh, for, for doing it, even if some of the H's are not as, as well thought through. The question is whether or not he's, he's winning sort of the broader battle with, within the force uh, and making a case so that it's lasting. I mean, we've seen time and again, very, very innovative leaders who've tried to do innovative things, and then their successors uh, just managed to unwind them uh, at the end of the day. Some, you could argue, were not good ideas, and it's good that they uh, got stopped. And others were, unfortunately, maybe bad ideas that uh, survived. Uh, so uh, ultimately, uh, uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and Jim, I guess my counter, my my point is, I don't like it when anybody in the alliance actually uh, tries to hijack the alliance and and does not work, as you said, diplomatically and behind the scenes in order to be able to address their concerns. And it becomes a public spat. It just makes the alliance look weaker. And to a, a cunning and shrewd adversary or adversaries, you're only giving opportunities for whether they're Chinese or Russians to get in there and and, and exploit these rifts. Turkey has very, very legitimate security interests. Um, but it's, it's sort of the sense that I don't like it, whether it's French doing it, Americans doing it, Turks doing it, or you know, those pesky Belgians uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, is, is, I think, a little bit more my concern.
2: Uh, well, no, I, I understand that. But I do want to say that what Dove said, I think, is absolutely right about in this particular case, Erdogan is up for a re-election uh, and he does want to go public, particularly now to win votes. And I think that's an important part of why we're seeing it so public right now. Uh, so I wanted to just footstomp uh, Dove's point. Uh,
0: in, indeed uh everybody uh thanks very much again for joining us really appreciate a terrific conversation is there anything we're missing uh going once going well, twice Vago, three would, times I, yes go I, ahead patrick
4: i would say you know kim jong-un is determined to show that he is a small great power and even though maybe 10 percent of the population right now has covid fever and they're unvaccinated uh, he's going to launch an icbm uh, this weekend while the president's in northeast asia that uh you know will raise huge concerns, but I think it'll actually galvanize uh, the allies to take more action.
0: And, and, and very uh, briefly, because we're already over time, what does that action need to be, right? I mean, if we already know he's going to do that, means smart people are already thinking about what the reaction has to be. What does the reaction have to be at that point?
4: A resumption of exercises, uh, an extended deterrence dialogue that's elevated, uh, a discussion about trilateral cooperation among Japan, Korea, and the United States.
0: Does Scott Morrison survive uh, uh, re-election?
4: No, he doesn't. Uh, We're going to see Anthony Albanese uh, after nine years of conservative governments uh, across uh, Abbott and Turnbull and Morrison. It looks like the man who grew up in public housing, Anthony Albanese, uh, is going to be leading the government here next week in Australia.
0: And what does that mean?
4: Well, it means steady as you go on the alliance, um, because labor has moved uh, to the right on China policy in the last few years, because everybody's moved to the right because of Xi Jinping. Um, And so nobody expects major changes in the short term on U.S.-Australian relations. I think that could get a little more rocky if the Republicans start to take leadership in the Congress. There could be fights over things like Climate change, because this this will be one difference of labor from the liberal coalition that's been ruling these last nine years. That um, climate change will become a bigger part of Australian policy. That's likely to be met very well in the White House, not so well in Congress.
0: Uh, well, large parts of uh, Australia are actually becoming uninhabitable, right? I mean, so this this is a little bit like the Titanic is in its last <laughs> last stages of sinking, and people are like, "Wait a minute." The- angle of the deck is changing. We should do something about it. It's like, eh, you know, we we may be past that, uh, past that point. But hey, the way I look at this is, um, we are all in profit interested uh, nations, right? Somebody will be able to make some money Uh, and maybe sell some some more air conditioners uh, at the end of the day, as horrible as that is to say. Uh, Thanks uh, very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation. Uh, As always, hope you all have a terrific weekend, a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. And, uh, And Jim, welcome back, and Dove, bon voyage.